Welcome to the Brothers Zoll Podcast, a show 37 years in the making, hosted by David, John, and Simeon Zoll. Join us as we recreate some of our favorite dinner table discussions from growing up. Talking theology, culture, jokes, and everything in between. Well... Today we're talking about holiness, and um, it is, yeah, again, a, a big subject. I, I wonder when I ask people, what the, what is their association with the word holiness? I think today it's sort of one of those things like righteousness. Most people's, uh, y- you think of a holier-than-thou is one of one, one sort of self-righteous. It's a that's one term I think people think of when they think of holiness. There's a there's a connotation of like maybe some some hermit on a mountain somewhere or uh, Mother Teresa, uh, but or even you know, Dorothy Day or something like that. I I just don't know how much it, it's obvi- it's a difficult term to just to define anyway. But then you have on top of that a confusion about. What on earth, uh, what a sort of an example of holiness might be is, is so diffuse and wide ranging. Um, I've always heard, you know, in, in sort of in evangelism 101 or religion 101, they talk about being, holiness as being set apart, right? That's the, the, I don't know why, where that comes from, Sim, you could tell us, but set apart. I don't know how much that translates into modern parlance in any way, but before, like, as we begin, how do you, what comes up to you, when you in your mind when you think of the word holiness? How do you define it functionally, operationally? What do you say? So uh, for me, and you know, I'm a theologian, and I talk about these things all day long for a living. So uh, I, I, my connotations aren't necessarily uh, what everyone else might be. So I mean, I think of it so initially as a term that is sort of opaque uh, a little bit. So I don't think of it as sort of moralism and and these sort of righteous saints who I'm not so much anymore. I guess at this point in my life. But what I do now, I think of it as as you know, um, really as what you. Um, Actual holiness would is a wonderful life where you are freed from all the stuff that makes your life terrible for uh, in order to live simply and desiring the things of God uh, and that is a life of delight and happiness insofar as it exists. So that's kind of a theological definition, but but I, I that's what I respond to in it. When I think of the word holiness, I think I can still remember what I used to think it would look like. Right, that you kind of. We had this friend growing up, remember, Anne Long, and we used to talk about the Anne Long factor, which was, um, she was this incredibly serene person. We now know that she was also um, the spiritual director for many bishops, sort of the guru of spiritual direction in the Church of England for all these bishops, uh, and a lifelong member, I think, of Winchester Cathedral who taught classes on listening. And when you would talk to her, you felt like you were truly communing with a spiritual being. It was like she walked two inches off the ground. You just saw a totally unflappable, compassionate presence that truly like sparkled in the eyes, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, I used to think that holiness was having the end long factor and that that was sort of the goal. And I had this let me say a terrible professor in seminary who once said to me, John, the people in your parish 
are thirsty, they want water to drink, and they need to know that the water is still. And what he was doing in a very passive-aggressive way was telling me that I was too animated and scattered as a uh, personality <laughs> type, and that unless I was able to somehow become more of a still personality, I would not be well-suited for uh, my ministry. And that I wrote. Wow. So like serenity is almost like it, it can, it is synonymous right. with That's, holiness. That was that sort regard. of how I grew up thinking about it from the outside looking in. And then when I became a Christian, I, uh, or at least sort of started thinking in those terms, I discovered that basically it was the exact opposite. The people, what I think about holiness as being today is being vulnerable being able to admit my failings and my shortcomings, being able to apologize for them. And um, so I don't really know if I'll ever become all that holy, but I know the one who is. And because of that, I'm able to confess my unholiness, which is actually a very commendable trait. As you actually know, if you've ever been in a relationship with anybody, if they can't ever admit that there's a chink in their armor, or apologize, or just simply say, I was in the wrong, and not blame in turn. Uh, It's very hard to really actually be in a relationship with that person. Yeah, I mean, you think of, I think of like what Mike Tyson says about humility. Like if you, if you claim you're humble, you've just sort of disqualified yourself. You're not, you're not humble. Like I'm, he's like, oh, but I'm trying to be, man, I'm trying to be humble. And uh, Jean-Luc Marion, the uh, French philosopher said, someone who lays claim to sanctity disproves it in him or, in him or herself. Why can't holiness lay, holiness lay claim to itself? Not only because one imperatively does not want to fall into the massive trap of pride in one's own satisfaction and self-affirmation, which is involved, but above all, because holiness is indicatively, descriptively unaware of itself. Yeah. Maybe one of the ways to, to understand holiness is to describe its opposite. And I think that uh, something that you've just said sort of hits upon that. There's a defensiveness, I think, is kind of the opposite of holiness. Um, if you're unwilling to ever admit your failures or... Um, uh, wouldn't you say that? Or I, I, also, I also think humorlessness, but I also know that some people just aren't that funny. Um, <laughs> what, how would you describe the opposite of holiness, Sim? Mm. Yes. Yeah, so, so to me, it's the, and maybe there's just, uh, so I think it, of it as, uh, you know, sort of a, a kind of being a person who's constantly bombarding others with their self in an unself-aware way. Um, when I think of someone who I think, is, oh gosh, they really need to need to grow. <laughs> um, that's what I, I think of. I think sort of a, a lack of self-awareness that is causing harm to others. Um I guess I don't seem to come across a lot of people who I really think are are doing kind of active harm in a more sort of sinister way that I can see. Um, so for me, it's more a kind of bumbling immaturity uh, is what comes to mind there. I mean, that, that's what comes to mind when yeah. I think of you, actually. So <laughs> it makes, makes, makes perfect sense. I always think um, that we, you know, we live in a world where people always want to talk about sort of improvement being the product of making good choices, right? And so there's this idea that you can sort of choose holiness. And to my way of thinking, Christianity sort of espouses a vision of righteousness or holiness or becoming a better person that is very much an unconscious reflex 
Um, so, so in other words, holiness is like fruit that is born of a good tree, as opposed to the um, the goal. It's actually the means. Uh, so, anyway, th there's a line that I like from William Porchet de Bose, who founded Sewanee Theological College, and he said, "Only the saint knows sin." And in my own life, like when I think about have I improved? Have I not improved? We could talk about that great passage from Gerhard Ferdi, um, where he says, I'm a lot more tired than I used to be now that I'm an old man, but I would hate to mistake senility for um, increased righteousness, because I can no longer, he <laughs> yeah. says, quote, indulge the lusts of my youth. It's an amazing line. And it's like, well, well now that you're older and tired, you know, um, does that mean you're now um, improved? You know, I always find that the moment we get into that territory, it's pretty murky. But yeah, he describes holiness almost as an increase in lucidity rather than an increase in any kind of progress, or rather than kind of progress that can be measurable. He says the very question itself is somewhat absurd or ridiculous. It says, as I get older and death draws nearer, it doesn't seem to get any easier. I get a little more impatient, a little more anxious about having perhaps missed what this life has to offer, a little slower, harder to move, a little more sedentary and set in my ways. It seems more and more unjust to me now that I've spent a good part of my life, quote, getting to the top. And I just seem, I seem to have just about made it. Uh, now that I'm just, just about made it, I'm already slow down already on the way out. A skiing injury from when I was 16 year old acts up if I overexert myself. I am too heavy, the doctors tell me, but is it so hard to lose weight? Am I making progress? Well, maybe it seems as though I sin less, but that may be only be because I'm getting tired. It's just too hard to keep indulging the lusts of the youth. Is that sanctification? I wouldn't think so. One should not, I expect, mistake encroaching senility for sanctification. <laughs> oh, that is, for me, one of the be-all and end-all paragraphs on the subject matter. I think we've all met people or encountered people who, 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 who come across, who have that Anne Leonic factor, maybe not in her precise way, but you think, gosh, that person has, there's something about them that seems mm -hmm. that they're not parading in front of Again, me. Again, I just, just think, seems I tend to think that holiness is not something that really we own or possess, but it is something that happens to us and happens through us and is really, um, comes from God and is of godly substance. And so it's more like, I like Paul's analogy of us being earthen vessels. Yeah. You know, and so when you encounter, it's not so much Anne Long as it is the way in which she's a vessel. Um, and I think if we all just shoot for becoming like Anne Long, that would actually be a very monochromatic uh, expression of God's work in the world. And in fact, it seems to me that it really, it varies from day to day and from person to person and from circumstance to circumstance. And it has much more to do with the sort of fresh inspiration and outpouring of the Holy Spirit than it does with any kind of cognitive or cooperative measures on our part. Simeon, you're hearing all this. Think, yeah, what do you think? Well, I mean, there's definitely something about um, the, the self sort of decreasing, sort of, you know, a la John the Baptist. Um, uh, he must increase and I must decrease in a way that is not sort of, oh, watch as myself decreases, watch watch as I get so humble, but rather just sort of life does that to you. You, you learn that you're not, that you have, you're much less uh, interesting and impressive than you than you thought you were. Um, you're much less useful as a relational partner than you than you thought you would be or that you wish you were. Um, but what I, th I think 
there's something about sort of an orientation to others, uh, in addition to a kind of um, the sort of vibe, uh, which would do I I think is part of it. But that that you know, I, I guess I think I actually was thinking about this recently. I mean, you know, being in a family with little kids for, and married to someone for over 15 years now, and um, I mean, is it just sort of having gotten used to just not getting my way in certain ways and no longer minding? Um, basically because I, I like being with this person. I don't want to fight with them. I mean, that sort of actually feels a little bit like uh, I just don't care about my own needs quite as much as I did because it's been too, it's, I've learned that it's too exhausting uh, to sort of fight for them in certain kinds of contexts. And the same with, with you know, little kids. You just, you just take care of them whether you want to or not. And it sort of, it is a bit of a school uh, in, you're just not given the time or the energy to think about yourself. Um, so again, it happens to you. It's not sort of self-generated. Um, but there's something about uh, that. And I think also, um, I don't know about you guys, being a little further along in life now and having some actual occasionally responsibility in the world, a lot of people need things from me now. And I spend a lot of my day just sort of responding to requests um, that, uh, you know, it's often are mildly tedious. Uh, but maybe maybe there's something in that, in being, um, and it's related to kind of fatigue, actually. You, you just sort of do what's asked of you. Uh, and um, I don't know, what do you guys think? It sounds kind of depressing, but I also think it's, it's, <laughs> it's true. Well, it's certainly true of our time of life where you feel needed. I mean, I, I personally feel it's kind of trapped by all that request and all that need coming my way. But at the same time, you're right, it does free you from yourself. It's like what I had an experience recently of going, um, traveling somewhere and um, to, to speak. And then I had all this, I had some downtime and I just, uh, you know, I went for a run and then kind of just, what am I going to do? Just watch TV? Or after, after a while, I thought to myself, it would kind of be nice if I had a kid here to need something from me because I don't really know what I want to do. And I have books I want to read and I have stuff like that. But it, it, did, it did feel, I, I noticed in myself that I was missing um, or that fulfilling my own needs in an uh, immediate way was, was not that fulfilling. And mm-hmm. even though it, you, you spend a lot of time around children or uh, old aging parents or, you know, just in your community and, and you think if I could just get some alone time to do what I want to do, then I'd be happy. And then you do it and it's, it's never delivers. And yeah. it's, um, mm. it, that's, and that, that, uh, I think that that freedom from self is, uh, you know, it, it is, um, it seems to me the consistent testimony of like the, the great saints that people talk about and whether that be, you know, either like a Mother Teresa or a John Stott or a Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or anyone along those lines, uh, even like a John Lewis recently, is that Christian progress really is, it's measured in like becoming more aware of your own sin, becoming more dependent. It looks like you're becoming more you know, self-sufficient, but in fact, if you talk to them, it's like they're they're more aware of their own how short they fall. Mark Seifert is a um, theologian who says that progress in Christian living is paradoxical. We go forward by ever going back to Christ crucified and risen for us. Christian growth is often construed as a gradual upward path to sanctification. This picture is false and unbiblical. It implicitly carries us away from Christ and the liberation from ourselves that only his cross and resurrection can give. We are not called to progress in ourselves away from Christ, but to progress in Christ away from ourselves. Um, it's a great line. I, I um, totally identify with that at a, at a personal level. Um, there's a this image, I, I just find like in the, in the 
prayer book service that I use every Sunday and all the time, the emphasis is always, you never get to the point where you graduate from saying the confession in our tradition. And I find that I used to sort of feel like it was a bit of an affront or a little offensive, you know what I mean, to kind of kick off the service by acknowledging that I'd erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep and followed too much the devices and desires of our, my own heart, right? But I now almost look forward to that piece because until I even go to that place, I can't begin to appreciate something other, which is really God. And um, I, in my own life, find that I get better as a person not by focusing on improvement, or by focusing, setting goals around virtues. Like I have, basically at this point, we can talk about virtue, but I am totally uninterested in virtue ethics and, and thinking about virtues. I find it to be, it's, it's like, just to me, irrelevant, you know, because it doesn't shape anything. Talking about a virtue does not create the virtue. But talking about the lack of virtue in myself or in another person's life often brings me so much closer back to the center of my being and closer to my God, who is gracious and loving and accepting of me. And so I find that if I really want to get better, the best way to do it is counterintuitive in that it's to continue to focus on the places where I'm not getting better. The line from C.S. Lewis is that the closer you get to the sun, the bigger the shadow. And I think that's a great an insight. And so I used to probably tell a lot of lies and exaggerate a lot and say anything that I thought would make me look better or that would cover my trail. And then as I started trying to be an honest person, I um, noticed that I felt worse when I told a little lie than I ever did before when I told a big lie. Like I used to think, that doesn't really matter. Ends justify the means, you know? And now I was like, any lie to me felt like a huge thing laden with gravity and, and just impl imp implying all kinds of issues. And so I, I went into this bookstore and I, they changed the price of cream cheese. Uh, you could buy these little Philadelphia packets of cream cheese and you'd toast a bagel and then you would go and get a cream cheese. 60% less fat than butter or margarine. Philadelphia cream cheese is a little taste of heaven, perfect for your morning. And they used to charge you 25 cents, um, you know, f for one of them. And then one day they upped the price to 50 cents. And I felt that it was a great injustice and that it was not fair. And so I kept using two and I would go up to the counter and I would say, yeah, I only used one. And I'd check out. And after about two weeks of doing that, I felt so guilty that I went into the bookstore to make amends, where I said, I have been lying to you. I have been stealing from this bookstore. I have been underpaying and taking extra cream cheeses. And I owe you. I've calculated it all. Here are, is $8 for the cream cheese <laughs> that I have stolen. a lot of cream cheese, John. You ate a lot I of know. cream cheese. Yeah. And, and and they looked at me like I was a totally insane person. <laughs> like, talk about mountain out of a molehill, right? And like, who is this? This guy's nuts. Like, $8? Scrupulosity. Yeah. yeah. And so my point is, I had actually become a much more honest person. And yet the experience I was having was feeling less honest and more worked up about my dishonesty than I'd ever felt before. And oh, that's, that's how I think story. about most sanctification. Thank you for yeah. letting me ramble. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, girl. You're crying all the time. You ain't nothing but a hound dog,
don't know, we, we, the three of us have been around the block at now talking about the sort of message of the gospel for a while. And I mean, at least I've been told that we don't care enough about holiness and that holiness is not uh, high on the list of priorities. If anything, it, it only, we make it sound like uh, what you do doesn't matter in any way. And there's like a nihilistic view of uh, that everything is about salvation and nothing is about sanctification. Now, I find in, in practice that tends not to be true at all. Um, and, um, and yet, this when someone tells you what about what about holiness how are you emphasizing personal sanctification or improvement why aren't you what's you know do you not care how how do you respond to that i, I mean i know how i respond i'll share it in a second but what what do you say sim i i say a couple of things and i think you know i guess one thing that comes up a lot when you think about holiness i mean i spent a lot of time especially when i was younger um really being annoyed at what I thought were really bad and kind of destructive Christian ways of thinking about holiness that kind of turned Christianity into um, a big moral game. And, uh, and and it was just full of judgment and people always sort of watching you, you know, you go to a fellowship group and you know, who you, I just, you, you, people watching each other in sort of some college, you know, fellowship group. And, uh, and I really wanted to sort of find a way to think about that and to talk, to persuade people uh, uh, that the Christian gospel does not lead to um, dour, humorless uh, Big Brother time, even though in practice it seems to uh, in uh, fairly often. So uh, partly I say, well, you know, the, the, the other, first of all, what is your account of sanctification and does it work? Um, and, you know, I think a lot of the sort of, when people say that to, to me, um, they don't so much now, but they have many times in the past. They, uh, I, I sort of say, well, what is what is your view, and does it really work? Uh, and they always say, well, not fully, but maybe a little. And then, um, so that's part of it. There's just an empirical thing. Well, whatever it is, it has to be something that actually works, that matches the reality of of Christian life, um, uh, as I've experienced it, and that doesn't eclipse and occlude. Uh, the good news um, in practice, but now what I do, what I, what I want, if I actually want to talk about it in a way that it might be persuasive to people rather than just critical, um, th- there are two categories that that really I think do a lot for me. Um, one is that it is to sort of emphasize this the the goodness of God and His creation, and that that you know being more Christian or whatever it is, being a holy person is not uh, sort of getting more points on a scoreboard. It's it's discovering the amazing wonder of God's world and seeing people for what for the wonderful people they are that that are beloved of God and uh, enjoying God's creation and those kinds of things. Sort of it's a positive, attractive uh, thing. It's it's not being that sort of self that. I don't like, or at least being able to admit that I am that self and and, and wish I weren't. Um, so that's one thing. A kind of the, the, you need the attraction. So you know, I used to be. Um, there may have been a period in my life where I was somewhat addicted to a video game, and uh, when it, when I finally stopped sort of being addicted to this game after several months, it was what what the, the way that that happened was actually another game came out that was less addictive, and I was able to be like, oh, I want to play that game. And that was actually how, rather than I need to just stop, that never worked. I tried and it didn't work. Whereas, oh, actually, I'd rather play that game. Somehow that broke me out of uh, the cycle. And I think that's how, how human behavior actually changes. That's how Augustine and 
you know, Luther and Melanchthon thought that human behavior actually changes. And I have another category too, but I'll, I'll bring that up later. No, no. Tell, what's the other category? Yeah, what's know? the other? <laughs> uh, the other category Don't is... Don't just give us one category. <laughs> we want two. <laughs> the other one is, um, uh, is play. Shall we play a game? So uh, there's a, a, an amazing line from uh, Nimi Waraboko that some of you will know. It says, grace is the negation of work, but play is its style of negation. So I found that often when people didn't were, were dissatisfied with my account of sanctification in some way, um, what they what they needed you need to give some content, you need to give something, you know, not just say it's a nothing or it's a you'll know it when you see it because that doesn't that doesn't persuade, uh, at least in the context of a discussion, um, but to say it's playful, it's life lived free of the law in a way that is creative and pregnant with possibility and full of joy. Uh, and and that that isn't just sort of a bland nothing. So Oliver O'Donovan has this line sort of criti- criticizing Lutheran accounts of of justification um, as sort of leaving the moral life as just sort of a bland nothing of non uh, of rejection of the law. And that's just I think the category of play helps explain why that's not the case. It's it's a freedom for to 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 engage to to risk um, to do exciting things uh, sort of in God's kingdom, uh, to laugh. Um, there's a humor, there's a, a, a critique of seriousness implied, I think, in the idea of play. And I think it's very pneumatological, the freedom of the, the free dynamic spirit is a spirit of play. You get to live your life, uh, see what happens, um, and not constantly worried about what might, might happen. Um, so that, that, that category to me gives some, some fills it in a bit. I love that. I think I that too. that's a hundred percent true, and that the, the fr- there's something about freedom in play, and there's something in, that's always constructive and pastoral, and you know, inner, if people are truly inner children, and 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 play is is always there's creativity, there's spontaneity, there's enjoyment of creation, there's all of the things that you're trying to that we're trying to get at when Christians talk about holiness, and I wonder if it has a little bit to do, you know, the tradition of the holy fool. You know, we're constantly told that God's the, the the foolishness of the world, or what is it? The um, the wisdom of the world is foolishness, and, and vice versa. In uh, what is it? Fool. And remember that wonderful film. I mean, it's Dostoevsky's The Idiot translated into modern world, which is um, our idiot right. brother, our yeah. idiot brother. You know, it, it's it's, and he's sort of basically a Jesus character who's kind of playful in the moment, but pure and good and he's constantly screwing everything up but for the sake of healing and it's it's all unconscious and it's 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 a picture of holiness that i think is kind of worth revisiting it's it's oh. a, it's a good picture of it wouldn't you say john i love that movie and i love that portrait of things well i gotta get back to work on the tumion what it's a cross-pollination between a tomato and onion Think of the time it'll save when you're making spaghetti sauce. I like that we're talking about the spontaneity of it. My issue, I believe in righteousness. I believe that people do display virtue and that lives are transformed by the grace of God. But I don't believe that they are transformed by um, talking about those fruits of the good tree, right? And so I, for example, had an employee once years ago who I was in charge of overseeing and we would do this annual review. And then in the annual review, there would always be a growing edge, I think was the way we talked about it. And the idea behind the review was that you would highlight the area that needed to be worked upon. And then that that person would improve so that a year from now, we would be able to notice um, like on a flow chart. Um, a calculatable improvement around the growing edge. And 
initially what I discovered was that the moment after the annual review, the person got more um, defensive and it felt like the growing edge got worse. And any attempts to kind of straighten it out using um, coercion or direct addressing of the issue, which is in my theological terminology just called using the law to try to inspire, it honestly made it worse to the point where three months after the annual review, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this growing edge is, is more than an edge. It's becoming the whole blade. You know, and and it and and it's going to be a, a termite that actually eats away the entire foundation of anything good this person's doing, right? And then some things happened, and a new person was brought in to oversee this person, and that person's role was simply to support and encourage. And we may have referred to the growing edge of the person she was now going to be attending to, but we didn't highlight it. And that just wasn't this person's approach. And so what instead happened is the same person with the issues now had a person in her corner who believed in her and publicly talked about how great a job this person was doing, how wonderful this person was. And it was the craziest thing. It was like the growing edge just started to evaporate. And the moment that we stopped talking about the areas that needed improvement, all of the improvements that we've been looking for the whole time by focusing in on them started to be born unconsciously in this person's life and work. And that's what I think we're talking about. That's a totally like concrete example of how I think all this stuff works. And so I'm all about it. I just believe that we get there through this kind of backhanded way. I was thinking about, um, you know, we're thinking about virtue, and right now we're on the eve of Thanksgiving, and people have always talked about cultivating gratitude as a virtue. And I've been reading something, an incredible book about midlife malaise, go figure, <laughs> called The Happiness Curve um, by Jonathan Rauch, and he says something about gratitude, which, which jives almost perfectly. This is how social scientists, they call it a feedback loop, uh, when he says, counting my blessings, as I did on the threshold of 40, was a worthy exercise morally. I'm glad I did it but I'm no longer surprised it didn't help. Unknowingly, by trying to explain to myself why I ought to be more satisfied with my life, I was giving myself more reason to dwell on the gap between how satisfied I felt and how satisfied I thought I should feel. Meaning That's the insistence so that you need to be more grateful or more satisfied only makes the person who's feeling ungrateful less grateful. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a feedback loop and you can get into it almost, almost, you almost fall into it. The better things are even going in your life. It's a, it's a very uh, of, uh, kind of scary, but also very true um, reality for many people. And it, and it contradicts holiness on a fundamental level, I think, in practice. Sim? I think, uh, I mean, one way of putting what we're talking about and what the, I mean, none of it, we all sort of we believe in holiness, really and genuinely. Um, what we have is a different theory of change, I would say, a different theory of how it gets brought about. And uh, and a lot of the, sort of the top-down efforts, uh, explicit, let me try harder, let me learn more, let me uh, um, focus on it, do the right things, you know, it, it, 
you know, when they're done that way, it just tends to not work. Whereas there, you actually get there, you know, by, by the back door, the way that um, that John is talking. But what, what's behind that is, is a kind of a, a theory of how people change. And and I think I just I don't I do believe people change. I just have a different theory of how it happens. And I, you know, I'm a little more pessimistic than some about the degree to which it's likely to happen. But. Or it happens in some ways, and then you get worse in other ways, right? I mean, it's like yeah. a... I don't think it's a fixed thing, even if it does happen. You know, I think it's more like a... It happens for a while. From one day to the next, yeah. Um, for what whatever. It, I thought it was a really pithy way that a friend of mine named Trey Lavorne says, uh, he says, and I, I kind of... It's, a, it's an easy way to explain this. Uh, he says, people only change when they no longer feel they have to in order to be loved. Mm. That people, is a great line. People only change when they no longer feel they have to in order to be loved. I mean, that's... I think that is great. I mm. think that's that's simple. I remember there was a rapper, Lil Bow Wow, was interviewed on New Year's Eve. And they said, what are your uh, your um, New Year's resolutions? I think he's now year? just Bow Wow, right? Maybe he's just Bow Wow. And, and, some, <laughs> and he said, oh, I don't make resolutions because I don't keep them. <laughs> and I just thought, now there, that's the smartest thing anybody's ever said about resolutions. <laughs> that guy actually knows himself and what human nature is really like. Well, didn't you send me a TikTok video recently of a young woman being like, she started cracking up because she found a journal with all of her resolutions for 2020? I found my goal list that I made in December for my goals for 2020. <laughs> okay, tell me if this is not hilarious. All right, goal one, make more money. <laughs> I was, you know, been unemployed since March. Travel more. <laughs> Lose weight. <laughs> Be more social. <laughs> I wrote cry less, cry less, cry less. I've cried every single day of this whole pandemic. Um, spend more time. <laughs> it's not funny, but I wrote spend more time with my grandma and she died. <laughs> She's so tickled, but there's also something kind of beautiful about how funny, how lightly she's holding these things that have been demonstrably, uh, you know, taken apart in her life. And yet she's still here. She's still got a smile on her face and it's, but it has nothing to do so, like, the with her resolutions. Was, people say like change is hard. And what I would contend is no change is impossible. And so when change occurs and it does all the time, it's a miracle. And so then who gets the credit for the change? And what is the origin of the change if change that does occur actually does happen and yet is impossible? Well, God gets the credit for it. And God is the source of it, right? That's how I think about it. So whenever I see somebody forgive somebody else, I think they didn't forgive because it was hard. They forgave because it, uh, they had a miraculous change of heart. Yeah. There's and, a yeah. Connor Connor Gwynn today was talking about a 12 step meeting he was in. It is on Mockingbird, and he said that he was listening to a woman who said that she just had 27 years sober, and someone someone immediately was like, "Well, how did you do it?" And she paused and she said, "I didn't." And then she pointed to the sky as though uh, I didn't do this. I, it wasn't me. And it was it was one of these moments where you're like, "I want to spend time with that person. Well, let <laughs> yeah. me, how can I, then, how can I sit at her feet?" Yeah, and then you don't hold on to this stuff like it belongs to you, right? Like it's something you can – basically, this angle keeps you from ever being able to be proud of your accomplishments. It keeps you humble and yet enables you to acknowledge them in a way that is really, I think, reverent 
and you know gratitude laden right hmm. and I, that's why i think the uh what we were talking about earlier i mean it, it's actually a less trivial point than it might sound that humor is a sign of of not taking yourself seriously you know of, of that form of kind of of holding things lightly you you can laugh at yourself like that that lady when you're um and that is kind of a sign of <laughs> sanctification, but it's also a sign, you know, when, when there's no humor in a particular kind of, especially religious environment, you sort of think, gosh, everyone's, everyone's holding it up, holding it pretty tightly. Uh, and, and to be free to, to, to laugh at yourself is so, is a, is a good indicator, I think. And there's also, there's other fruit that's not just humor. I mean, there's things like uh, patience. I mean, uh, I think that uh, someone who has, has got a, has given, been given a glimpse of God's work in their own life has, has a little more patience with other people who, who are on a certain timetable. <laughs> and uh, just because something's not happening now doesn't mean it won't ever happen. I was hoping I could read a quote from Hebrews 5 that played a huge role in my own life and deciding to go forward for ministry. And it's, um, it's I, I, basically, I took it out of context, and it's never let me down. Um, but uh, <laughs> well, Jesus I took used a to lot think, of scripture like, out of context. I used to it? think that um, in order to be a minister and a representative of God as an ordained priest of the church, that I would have to be a better human being than other people, a better Christian than other people, right? And when I was in seminary one time, after this passage I'm going to read to you had such an impact on me, I was at Wycliffe in Oxford, and I was looking at a room full of people who had given their lives to serve God and the church, many of them with great humility, and I would say holy people, and just people who really were deeply giving of themselves. And I said, raise your hand if you've ever felt like the worst Christian in, your, in the room. And every single hand went up, right? And so this is what it says in Hebrews 5 about the priesthood that changed my entire understanding of ministry and helped me to see that I would be a good one. It says, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. That, for me, was the breakthrough that I understood that what I was doing was demystifying the reality of ongoing struggles with sin and having compassion for people in the midst of those struggles as one who knows them myself that enabled me to feel like I had what it takes to be a man of God. Isn't that interesting? There is a 200 seconds. How you understand holiness is almost kind of doubles as like a, a roadmap for actually being of service to other people. Um, and uh, you know, John, you're you're an actual rector of a church, and but Sim, you're you're, you're taking care of students and of also of uh, kids. I mean, 
how then, because again, there's, there's the refrain that I hear is like, well, you're saying we can't do anything um, to become holy and, or that you're, all you can do is confess. And just, that's the only active step a person can take. I mean, how do you, how do you help someone uh, grow in holiness as it were? Or I don't um, think they can, I can't confess either. Again, right. I think that's also something that has to happen to them. Sure. Right. You know, how, where do you take this in, in terms of in terms yeah. of loving other people? What what do, do you take it there at all, or is that a different category? One thing I think that that kind of question is slightly a you know a, a heady question because what's actually happening in any given moment is that life is happening to you, and you're not sort of theoretically trying to become a more holy person. You're always actually engaged with the things that are going on with whatever struggle, whatever issue, whatever person, and uh, in a way, I mean, sort of God. God brings these things to you and forces you to deal uh, with them. You don't sort of choose the holy stuff from, you know, the, the God, life comes to you, God comes to you through providence in what actually happens. And, and that's, that's the school, uh, the, the school of holiness is not something that you are choosing to enter. It, it's, you're already in it uh, in, in, in your life. And so the, the, the question is always more particular than how can I be more holy? It, it, it's always like, how can I you know, deal with what's right in front of me um, right now. And I think that's a sort of a more interesting question than how can I sort of have a bit, bit more moral juice in the, in the, in the tank. Mm, that's great. I personally was never, um, I was so interested in holiness before I became a professing Christian. Like, I think everybody's obsessed with holiness in that everybody's totally fixated on their own improvement or lack thereof. It's what every magazine in the grocery store is about, how to lose weight, 12 steps to getting better, changing from being who you are. This is what every gym membership is about. This is what every New Year's resolution is motivated by. And for me, what was so powerful about Christianity was it was a, um, a space where I didn't have to get better in order to be worthy of love. And so what I am actually interested in, yes, is taking the question off the table. I want to always deflect when they ask me, what do I need to do? What next? I want them to never be able to enter into that territory in the church, which is totally unique to their experience of life anywhere else, right? That they can come here and not be simply gauging their levels of improvement, which is what pagans do. You know what I mean? It's like that is, there's nothing interesting or at all um, compelling about that Christianly to my way of thinking. If you really want to get into asceticism, there is great room for that in the Christian tradition, but there are about a million other great avenues, secular and other religious, you know, paths that will very possibly transform you more greatly as a person inwardly. Um, so, I mean, for me, I punt whenever that question comes up and says, no, you don't understand. Um, until you stop worrying about that question or only worrying about the holiness of the one who matters, you're not really going to appreciate how awesome this, the play that you were talking about, Simeon, so, is. John, I, um, you know, I totally agree with you, and I, I do uh, essentially the same thing. And I think also there are forms of that kind of the, the you know, the improvement mindset that we're all caught in in all these different ways um, that are really just straight up sort of competitive and aggressive and, and just ego-driven in ways that are just just awful. But I also think, as you're, you're describing these people reading these self-help books and all these things, also that this sense of compassion that, you know, people don't like their lives. People want 
people are, are hurting and, and their lives are empty and they want. So I think I've a drive towards holiness. And I don't want someone to hear kind of what we're saying and say that, that that's not, um, there isn't something legitimate about wishing things were better than they were, longing for more. I don't, it, what, what I would criticize is the, is, is the pathway and how we get there. But I think there is something fundamental to, something kind of sweet about how people yeah. are, are so dissatisfied. And I think we do feel that maybe particularly acutely in, in late modernity, um, that life feels very flat. And, and so we just, we fill it up with all the, with, with, I don't know, all the stuff that Dave's books are about. Um, and because, uh, but actually that, that speaks to a, a kind of tragic situation. Um, and so to speak with compassion to that, uh, yeah. I think is also important. Yeah, because yeah. there's some ways in which a lack of holiness is what people suffer. And so they're sort of like, I really wish I was more patient or I was different. And, and it's not a neurotic wanting to prove myself, although there, that's always there too, let's face it. But, there's, but there is a sense of like, I'm really suffering the fruit, the fruit of this lack of holiness and it's painful, and I want to, I, I want to be free of this. And then, yeah. do you then come in and say, "Well, let me tell you how to do it," or do you do you say, "Well, let's keep talking about how dysfunctional this is, so that it becomes a little bit disentangled from you, or something like that?" I, I'm just eager to convey to people that I don't care if they get better. <laughs> okay, that's all they care about, and that's sad that that's what they're so they're they're so hard on themselves. And the culture is so hard on them. And, and, and I want people to know that I don't care if they get any better. And that their ability to be in contact or a member of my church, for example, in no way hinges upon the answer to that question. Mm, amen. But I do think your point is right. But I'm, isn't the word in sort of orthodox theology, Simeon, apophatic, right? I always say, if you want to get holy, then let's talk about unholiness. Mm, if yeah. you're if you're wanting to get thin, then let's talk about your eating. If if you want to get um, nicer, then let's talk about the times that you're mean. And to my way of thinking, until you go to the opposite place of the virtue, you you're not going to make any headway. And so that's that's sort of my angle, and that's I think really our tradition's angle in like the the prayer of confession and the 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 model that we follow. Um, every week. Um, And this applies on a collective level too, by the way. People want to transform communities to do this. And this almost, that almost backfires worse, I think, (laughs) than than personally. But it's the same exact thing. It just plays out usually in a different ideological community, a different political community. But Sim, what are you saying? I know I I completely agree with what John is saying. And I want to say that that's, it's, it's sort of the, it's the best thing about, you you know, about being a Christian is just is is not having being able to be able to say to people really it's okay. Um, uh, you, I'm not expecting you. I don't need you to change. Um, and being able to sort of kind of sincerely say that uh, in all kinds of contexts is is always it feels good. You know, it, it's a very liberate. People respond, and I I love the fact that I get to live my life with that as a as a resource. You know, as a way of um, being. Of course, I it doesn't. You know. It, not always there, but um, but I, I find it's it's just uh, it's one of the best things. I, I wouldn't I, one of the reasons you know I couldn't imagine not being a Christian. Partly for that reason, you just have to get upset about stuff all the time. Yeah, the other thing about the question is that it's so self-centered. Hmm. It's like, why do you want to improve so that you feel better about yourself? Well, that's 
that's not what this is about. You know, that's, that's not what Christianity is about, helping you feel better about. If you're interested in feeling, uh, in being a better person so that you can better serve other people and God, that is a much more compelling question um, to my way of thinking. And so, like, I just like the line, God will never make you so good that you no longer are dependent upon him right? That's how I think of it. And people basically, they want to somehow be made into something that is no longer a victim of the state of need. If you lose that, you will never have faith. And you will never be a person who looks outside of yourself for hope and resolution and a way forward. Mm. Um, anyway, I was just teaching on uh, Luther's lectures in Galatians yesterday with a student, and um, that's one thing that he's uh, he's just so wonderful about the way in which the your your own holiness becomes an obstacle because really it's setting yourself up as God, or at least very often what's going on. Sort of, psychologically and spiritually, you're, you're actually wanting independence from God by wanting to be holy on your own two feet. And that that is not only, that's why he says things like good works are actually worse than not good works, at least in relation to things like monasticism and stuff, because they, they are specifically blocking your relation to God. There's, insofar as that's the case, uh, I, you know, I, think, I think there's something to that. Absolutely. I mean, what, what is it, um, John? Maybe you've said it to me before. I've just that self righteousness is more toxic to the to the spiritual life than um, self indulgence, and that's because self righteousness is always the temptation away from God um, towards yeah. self, and that's what Seifert is talking about in that quote we read earlier. And it's well, I would just say like feeling good about yourself is probably less likely to produce faith in the heart than feeling bad about yourself. <laughs> That's, I mean, a simple way of putting it. Um, and, and, like you're closer to God when you're feeling low than when you're feeling sound. Yeah, I'd still rather uh, feel sound most of the time, though. <laughs> sure. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. You know what? If you can figure that one out, you won't need to come to church. You exactly, know? yeah. Um, I, the other, I, my friend Jonathan Hansen, one of our close friends, he said this thing to me. He said, don't pray for God to give you strength. Pray for God to be your strength. And I'll never forget that. That was such a reorienting perspective for me on how I think about sanctification prayerfully. Um, just to view it as really something that has its origin outside of myself and in Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Um, and it just, it just took me to a totally different realm of possibility. That I, and I, I never doubt God's strength or God's patience or God's grace, even though I doubt mine all day long. And I know if I can get a crumb of it to in any way, you know, dictate something that I do, it will be more than enough righteousness and virtue and all the things that the people in my life, you know, hope I'll become. go like what are some resources uh, either those be books movies works of theology songs um anything that comes to mind when you think of holiness or just uh, depictions of holiness or um any of the th themes we've been talking about today what what uh what occurs to you 
Well, I think that quote, that, that little essay called On Sanctification by Gerhard Ferdi that you quoted the famous last paragraph from at the beginning um, is a really great work. My favorite book on the subject that I've read, and I haven't read that much, but is the one that dad introduced me to years ago called The Reconstruction of Morality by Carl Hall, H-O-L-L. That to me is the definitive work on what actual Christian sanctification looks like. And um, here's just a quote from it that I pulled up while we were talking. He says, action is truly moral, truly free, only when the good has become so instinctive that the only thought that presents itself is the correct one, and this is at once implemented. When I read that book, I felt like I was in completely new ethical territory as far as explaining the data of life and of virtue and of what it means to improve or become more sanctified. So th those are my two. Hmm. For me, a uh, couple of things. One um, is uh, I always think of uh, Theophilus North. I've probably mentioned it already. Um, but the, that is a picture of a man who's engaged in ministry in a way that is playful and genuinely others-oriented without being needy about himself. And he has a, he, you know, has a sense of humor, but he's also really able to see the truth of people's situations and help them, but always in some kind of creative, funny, unexpected uh, very wise way. So it's just, it's a brilliant set of portraits of, uh, of a kind of saint in action in a way that is very completely unsanctimonious. And, and, um, and I, I that's to me, that's sort of the, the model. Um, but, uh, it's the, but just to clarify, Sam, I don't think you have spoken about it. So our listeners might not know what sorry, you're Sorry, it's, it's a novel called Theophilus North by Thornton Wilder. It's sort of a slightly lesser known novel of his about it's a guy best. who, uh, who goes to Newport, Rhode Island in the 1920s, um, after, uh, working in a school and, and sort of gets involved in the lives of everyone in town, the, the super rich and also the, the everyone in town and, and just finds these opportunities arise for him to engage in a kind of hilarious um, but also very moving ministry. I actually was just teaching a, a chapter of the Diana Bell chapter in, uh, in my class on the Holy Spirit to illustrate yeah, there's a, Augusta. There's definitely a holy foolishness there, you, as you said, a yeah. playfulness that's... Um, uh, I have a charts. quote about that, by the way, that I found. Um, there's a there's a brilliant book called The Ambiguity of Play um, uh, on sort of a study, a sociology of play. And uh, there's there, apparently there's an old a famous line, I'd forget where it's from in sort of British poetry called, there must be no Alsatia in England where the writ, uh, the king's writ does not run. And it's referring to there should, there can't be a place in London that's like a sanctuary where the, where, the, where the law can't reach you, where criminals can all go. There must be no Alsatia in England where the king's writ does not run. But there's a book called The Fool, a very obscure book that this guy quotes uh, by a woman named Enid Wellsford. And uh, she's talking about The Fool. She uh, says, The fool does not lead a revolt against the law. Rather, he lures us to a region of the spirit where the writ does not run. Uh, so it's not a revolt against the law. Holiness is, a, is being lured into a region of the spirit where you are... Uh, where the writ does not run, where, where you're you know, beyond, you're, you're in sanctuary, but it's not the same as being against it. Anyway, it's, I think it's a lovely line. The, the last thing I'll say, I mean, for what it's worth, I spent much of the last three years writing a very, spending a lot of, of, of energy and, and thought on, on the question of sanctification. The final chapter of my book is a more kind of, you know, just theological account of sanctification through the lens of Augustine, the category of desire that I think does justice, I hope, to what we're talking about, to, to reality. So many theologies of sanctification are, are caught up in, in what I think are slightly fantasies of, of 
you know, what, what Christians actually, what actually happens to them, what they're actually capable of, but how, how to talk about that well uh, without it just being a bland nothing. If you want a modern day example of Theophilus North, there's that show on Apple TV right now called Ted Lasso. And um, it's basically a modern day retelling of Theophilus North, uh, adultish sort of American heads over to the UK to coach a football team. And if you want to understand what we're talking about as far as sanctification, the illustration in that show would be the relationship between Ted Lasso, the coach, and the um, guy on the team named Nathan. It's a great lesson in how people actually transform, I think, and I think it's full of heart and, and also wisdom. his relationship with the team's owner. <laughs> I think that it's that, a whole other one. Absolutely, yeah. it, that's the, I was going to say Ted Lasso. If people are looking for this to 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 see it on the screen, um, I, I think it musically. Um, there's a lot of different ways people experience, uh, you know, freedom through music. There's, the, I, I, I can't get enough of the new Killers record, uh, and it has a song in there called Running Towards a Place, and the very opening lines, it's a prayer, the whole song is a prayer, is, give me the eyes that I may see the good in my people and the trouble in me. Mm. And it's, a, it's sort of a, that's to love the people, but from a place of humility about himself. And that's a, a I think that's kind of unlocks a lot of things. Um, there's also an album called Life is People by a guy named Bill Fay, who is a, um, a kind of a cult singer-songwriter in the late 70s, uh, late 60s, uh, early 70s, who then um, fell on hard times and uh, became like a janitor in England and just kept writing and recording these songs in his flat, you know, nowhere. And he's uh, he's a man of deep Christian faith, and he wrote this record that kind of came, came out when he's like 75 called Life is People, but it's all actually about God. And it's about his hope and faith in the midst of the tragedies of life that you kind of hear, for me, I hear a little holiness in, in the record in a way that is not, he's been through the school of hard knocks in a major, major way. But you listen to that and you're like, I believe it when I hear this man sing, uh, partly because there's just cracks in his voice and it's so frail and vulnerable, John, all the things you were talking about at the beginning. But Bill Fay, Life is People. So, um... Anyway, that's that's a lot, and um, yeah. I, I'm grateful for you guys. You give us. Hey, the do eyes. you know the story of the old Buddhist story about the uh, the um, woman who goes to meet with the guru and says, "What is the secret to your wisdom?" And he says, uh, "Experience." And she says, "And what is the secret to your experience?" And he says, "Good judgment." And she says, "And what is the secret to your good judgment?" And he says, bad judgment. <laughs> That's what I was saying. <laughs> oh, praise God. Well, all right. You, all right. You Thanks, two. guys. So good to be Talk with to you. Talk to you next time. Next time. Okay. Nose. 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 Thanks so much for listening to us do our thing. We hope you've enjoyed it. We do invite you to leave a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you've enjoyed this. And please tell your friends about it. Audio production was provided by TJ Hester. And you can find Mockingbird on the web at www.mbird.com. See you next time.